Hi, my name is Lori, and I'm a grateful recovered alcoholic. Hi, uh, it's funny how that works. I think really that God wanted you guys to hear Carrie, so you know, and then and, uh, and, and, you, and you get me. Um, usually, I, I want to thank you first of all. Before I get going here, I want to thank everybody. I do know what it takes to put these things together. Every once in a while, they've let me on a committee, and grac- and we're so glad when I was off of it um, because I found that you know I just really still do not know how to behave in crowds. So, um, but I, I always get, you know, uh, I come in with ego. I heard a man say one time that, you know, ego gets him into it and humility gets him out of it. And I, I get him. I understand him because ego's gotten me into every service commitment that I've ever gotten into. And then I find out there's work to do and then I get humbled and, and, uh, and we get something done and, and, and it's by the grace of God and the people around me. So, I don't know what's going to come out tonight. So what I'm going to do is things a little bit backwards. Usually we share what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Sometimes I get so caught up in the laughter and the story or whatever, they're like, good God, would that bitch get sober? So, um, you know, at least or we get to, you know, what it was like and what happened and what it was, you know, like five years in, and I'm 21 years into this deal, so it's kind of hard to get, you know, all the way through the story. We'd be here all night, for God's sakes. We don't want that. I'm funny, but I'm not that funny. So, but what I want to share in the beginning is in uh Carrie alluded to some losses, and I'm, I don't know what's going to come out tonight, but um, uh, 33 years ago when I was uh, 17, I met what I thought was the, the love of my life, this, you know, the first woman that I ever, you know, that I fell madly in love with, and, and we did a geographic to, uh, to Phoenix, Arizona, and that relationship lasted five years, but the friendship lasted 33 years. Um, circumstance in life. I got sober and we didn't hang out as much as we used to. I got sober and not everybody in the community did. And I, you know, in the beginning, I wasn't able to hang around with the same people, go to the same playgrounds with the same playthings because I wouldn't have been able to stay sober if I did that. Once I was sober long enough and I could do that, I had no interest in going to the same playgrounds and playing with the same people. So we would always see each other and we always knew we were family. We were there when things happened. When she had her heart attack, we were there when they put the stents in. My mother went and sat with her. and So we hadn't probably spoken in a while and she was living at a couple of friends of mine that I had um, somewhat lost touch with. And uh, so I was, I was in a coffee shop. I was in a Starbucks sitting with a friend and one of the gals come in and, and she came over and um, she's a big part of my story as well. And and she said, Lori, she says, you got to get over to the house. You need to see Sharon. I said, okay, why? She said, well, uh, Sharon was diagnosed with cancer a year and a half ago, lung cancer, and, it's, and things are getting pretty bad. And, you know, I, I could tell just by the look on her face what she meant by pretty bad. And so I said, I'm out of town this weekend. I think we had a speaking engagement. And I said, but I'll be back in town, and I'd like to come by Tuesday night and, I, and bring your mom. So my mom and I went, and I was so glad that she had somewhat prepared me because it was very hard for me to walk in that room and and see Sharon after what chemo had done to her body. And so, you know, um, I made a commitment that I wanted to spend some time with her. And at that point in time, they were, you know, they weren't really sure. They were still treating or whatever. But in a very short period of time, uh, Sharon went downhill very fast. And I spent the last two weeks spending my time at hospitals, and hospice. And uh, on Monday, earlier this week, I sat with my friend while she took her last breath. And I want you to know as heartbroken as I was because she wasn't ready to die. She wasn't ready to leave this earth. She didn't want to die. Uh, 
But what I know from you guys today is it never entered my mind to want to drink. Never even came anywhere near my mind. Um, I was not angry with God. I was angry at a disease. But I was not angry with God because I prayed for a couple of things. I said, God, if it's your will, let me be of service. Let's keep my ego out of it. Because my ego will be an, oh, I'll rush in and all this and all that, you know. I said, please, keep my ego out of it and let me be of service. And I was granted that. And I was very grateful because, you see, Sharon was a very modest woman. And it wasn't easy for her when somebody walked in and said, hey, we're going to clean you up now. And she smiled and she would say, oh, thank you very much, but she'll do it. <laughs> Why not? I've seen her naked. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, and I was able to do that, and I had no problem doing that. And when it was getting near the end and we were taking shifts, I knew that the two friends of mine that she had been living with, how hard it was going to be on them. They'd been seeing her day in and day out with this for a year and a half and how difficult that is. And as I get into my story, you'll know why I know how difficult that is. I said, God, if it's your will, and if I'm needed for that service, please let me be there when she goes. And it was my shift, and very rarely, usually there was two or three of us in the room, usually she had to tell us, to, can you guys be quiet? I'm not feeling good here. And, well, you know you get two or three gay people in a room. It's a fucking party. I, I you know, we even, you know, the two that she's been living with also got sober with me, and we're sitting, I said, could you imagine if we were still drinking? And we said, yeah, we'd be sneaking our alcohol, and we'd be drunker than shit. Sure, we'd be laying there dying, and we'd be crying, and, I, you know. The whole thing would just be ugly, and and uh, and and we, you know, because it's true, that's what we would have been doing, you know. So um, it was my shift. It was Monday, and uh, I was going to stay the night that night, and and uh, um, and I didn't need to stay that night because at around 6:30 that evening, Sharon passed, and I got to tell her I love her, that she was well loved, and um, and that it was okay to let it go, and to go, and and it was a gift. God gave me so many gifts. I have so many gifts today. And in the midst of this, I'm supposed to be planning a wedding. Carrie and I are having a commitment ceremony October 20th. And, uh, you know, um, I'd have married her right off the bat. I'm that kind of lesbian. She had to make sure it was going to work. So she said, let's. <laughs> Carrie, Carrie's, you know, a cautious animal. She says, let's wait 11 years and see what happens. <laughs> okay. You know, so uh, so there's all these things going on. You know, it's life, it's death, it's what it is. It's it, it's recovery today. You know, we get here. Nobody's getting out of this thing alive. I'm not getting it out of alive. Nobody's getting out of this thing alive. And the beauty of it is, is that today I don't have to have that kind of anger and angst and you know, um, yeah, my heart's broke. My heart's broke. Somebody that I've known my whole adult life isn't here anymore, and that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that two friends that loved her very much. You know, I know they're going to be waking up and getting up to go see how Sharon... Oh. Oh. And that hurts. But I know today that they have a God, too. And that it's okay. Um, so what it was like, what, it, what, what happened, and what it's like now. I was born in, uh, in Flint, Michigan, and everything went really, really well for the first three years. <laughs> no, no problems I can remember. <laughs> And then around three and a half, probably before my memory even begins, it's just started going downhill. Um, I have a sick family, and as sick families, you know, um, 
sick things happen. And when I was three and a half, there was a great uncle that lived up the street that began molesting me. And there's reasons that I share this. Um, I don't, I don't, I didn't drink. I didn't become a drunk because of all the things I'm going to share with you in my early years, but I did drink at every single one of them. I did use every single one of them as an excuse. But I also know today that there's room, in these rooms, that there's women and men out there that have had bad things happen and that they hold that shame and they hold that guilt and they keep drinking over it and they keep killing themselves over it. And I'm here to tell you, you don't have to do that today, that you can be free from all of it. You know, and as you hear my story unfold, I'm hoping that that's what I can, can help, you know, um, uh, display to you today. Um, but anyway, uh, he began molesting me, then another guy at the street began molesting me, and at an early age I had to learn how to kind of maneuver my way through life. You know, I just learned how to ride a bike, and I'm thinking, okay, I don't want to go up the street too far this way, because, you know, he's up there, I, I can't go too far this way, and just having to, you know, do this thing, you know, through life before a child should ever have to start thinking about those things. And so, needless to say, by the time I was eight years old, I needed a drink. <laughs> and, uh, and where I am very fortunate, um, the reason I say I'm a grateful alcoholic, I'm grateful today because, you see, these things were going to happen, whether I was an alcoholic or not. These things were going to happen because people are going to do what people are going to do. And I'm so grateful that I'm an alcoholic because God gave me a solution that worked for a very long time. Not, not nearly as long as I drank, but it worked for a very long time. We're stubborn, you know. I had to drink a long to be like, wow, this really isn't working. Uh, so when I was eight years old, um, I had a younger brother. He was four years younger, so what was he for? So he'd already been drinking for a year. And uh, um, there was always, you know, beer in the house. And I don't know how we were poor. But we always managed to have beer. And so he would get, you know, like when my, and my mother always had younger boyfriends. And so, you know, they would always, they'd have beer, they'd have whatever at the house. And so he would finish the beers that were left over, the little cans or whatever. So one morning, it's in the summertime, he goes to the fridge. And, and this is the whole difference why I'm an alcoholic first and not an Al-Anon first. Because the whole difference between me and, and my partner is, is when my brother went to the fridge and he opened that beer, I took it away and said, what, you know, mom's going to be so pissed. You're going to get us in so much trouble. And Al-Anon would have dumped it, hid the can, and covered the whole thing up. I poured it into a coffee cup, walked in the front yard, and I don't know what the hell happened to the can. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't take much when you're eight and it's your first drink. And so I'm out there with a coffee cup, and it was the first time that I discovered that um, I like having a drink in my hand. I like having people around me like this, and I love talking and laughing, and we are having a good time. Now, I could save you a lot of time and not have to tell you any more about my drunk log because that was my first drunk and my last drunk. We have a drink in my hand, you know, and we're all laughing. And the difference was between the first drunk and the last, the first drunk, there was a freedom in me and a release, and I felt comfortable in my own skin. The last drunk, I was no longer comfortable in my own skin. There wasn't enough alcohol on this earth that could make me comfortable in my own skin. And we were all laughing, but it was all surface, and that's not how I felt on the inside. Because on the inside was still that, that scared little girl who was, had no self-love, no self-worth, and just no sense of self. Because that's what my environment and that's what alcoholism had given me. You know, those were the tools that I was bringing to the table. But that particular day was a good day. It was good right up until my mother found me out there, and she was the only one in the neighborhood that didn't find me humorous. And she, um, I'm like, whoa, what's a stick up your ass? We don't, I don't get like this when you drink. And, and, you know, 
so, so she takes me into the house, and I go into the bathroom, and I throw up all over it, and the world has been, and all of a sudden, boy, this is not the, you know, this is not the uh, manna from heaven that I thought it was, and, and, uh, and I would, it, it took me nine years to learn how to drink properly, because I don't know about you guys, I know there's a lot of pukers out there, and God love the pukers, but, you know, um, I'm not, I'm not party till you puke kind of girl. You know, I'm kind of a selfish pig. Whatever goes in, I want to stay in. I'm not a sharer either. I don't show up with a 12-pack and say, here, have a beer. I show up with a 12-pack and say, what have you got <laughs> to go with my beer? And I realize this is AA, so we won't talk about what all you had to go with my beer. But um, I learned that there are things out there that you can use that can let you drink a very long time. So, you know, if those of you thinking about... I'm, you know, the really militant AAs hate when I do this. So if you're thinking about using again, really, try cocaine. You can drink much longer. It's wonderful stuff. Um, I'm not suggesting you relapse. It's really not a good idea. But if you're going to, it sure as hell isn't my fault. I'm just giving some advice on how to do it. So, uh, you know, so, uh, so I found... Uh, I, I found my first love, and it turned on me immediately, and it would take me 20 years to learn that it was never going to work. I, like I say, I'm a slow learner who thinks she's really smart. Um, I found a few other things, you know, like at, at 9 I was smoking cigarettes, and at 10 I was smoking pot, and, and then I just began collecting things after that. But my first true love and my last true love was alcohol. I got here because I'm an alcoholic. I got here because I drink alcoholically. I got here because when I put alcohol into my system, an amazing thing happens. I have this uh, craving that takes place where one is too many and a hundred isn't enough, and that's what happens when I drink alcohol. And I, you know, uh, I've tried all the different ways that we try to change that, to have it be different, to make it work for me. Like I say, it took me nine years to learn how to drink. My goal was to learn how to drink as much as I wanted and not throw up. That was really just a goal in life. I didn't want to walk straight. I didn't want anything like that. I just wanted to not throw up because it's just, it's messy and it's, your breath smells bad and, you know, who wants to go home with you? And I realized even if I didn't throw up, who really wants to go home with you? And, and, <laughs> You know, I like to say that AA is a beauty school for women, and it really is. You know, and I suppose that it is for men, too, but I just speak as a woman to women that it really is because, you know, I came in here with not pretty behavior, and it really not not pretty. I thought I was really cute, but I was bloated. I'm a beer drinker. How good could I look? You can't, I'm sorry. You can't drink a case of beer when you're five foot two and 110 pounds and look good. It's just not going to happen. But denial is a beautiful thing. So, um, uh I found something that got me out of myself, and I began, you know, to whenever I could get my hands on stuff, get my hands on stuff. I had somebody ask me after a meeting one time that about, you know, I think she thought that I was just a uh, chronic alcoholic from eight on, and that I was by nine sitting on bar stools, you know, tossing back drinks and, you know, telling people about that big empty hole inside of me. I said, no, 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 really. That was just my first drunk. That wasn't, I wasn't a daily drunk from nine years old on, it, you know. <laughs> My next drunk was probably not until I was 11, but I found other things to occupy my time and between that, that next drunk. And then I was the kid that stood outside stores and got the 18-year-olds to buy alcohol for you. That was after bumming money. That was always fun. You know, I'd act like we were, we would act like we were really poor, you know. I haven't eaten today and you're sucking your stomach and everybody to see how much, you know, money. I know, my God. Yeah, I was a I was a beggar. I was one of those little you know you get a little dirt. I, I would just tell get a little dirt on your face. That really. So I was I was I would go to this restaurant, this Coney Island, that was up the street from this trailer park I lived in, and 
Yes, Trailer Park Trash had his part of it. You know, we, we, we did. We, yeah. When Jeff Foxworthy said, when he was made that joke, he says, you might be a redneck if you've got 12 vehicles in your yard and the only thing mobile is your home. I didn't know that was a joke. I thought we lived in a trailer because my brother was going to get us evicted and we had to move every few years. So he's catching something on fire. And so, uh, you know. Today I realized, oh, that was a joke. Yeah. Well, we were poor. We lived in a trailer. Huh. So anyway, I was standing outside of this restaurant one time, you know, begging money to get the money together to have somebody go buy the beer for us. And this woman, and I got so hungry, and she just felt so bad for me that she bought me and bought me a Coney Island. I said, screw the beer. Let's have dinner. And I sat down and told lies. I don't know what I said. But today when I think back on it, you know, a, what a conniving little liar. My mother would have died. I mean, you know, if she knew what her kids <laughs> were out doing, you know, just because we, I don't know, thought it was humorous or, or you know, to, to get our fix. I mean, how much of her beer was she going to really let us steal? Not much, let me tell you. She was stingy with her cigarettes, too, I'm going to have you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but you do what you got to do. And at that point in time, I didn't know that I was doing what I had to do. At that point in time, I didn't know that I had a disease that was manifesting and that, you know, that was one day going to turn and ruin my life. I just knew that, um, that I liked the way it made me feel. It got me out of myself, and I needed to get out of myself, you know. When I was 11 years old, the, I had an older brother that I haven't mentioned yet. This was my younger brother, that um, he was the good boy. He was the one that when my parents divorced when I was six, um, he was the one that, you know, said, well, I'm going to help mom out, and, and oh, God, he got on my nerves. Yeah. I'm like, get into some trouble. Come on, smoke something, anything, you know. Drink, do something, do, you know. Um, he would get, in, he'd get, he got brought home by the cops one time. And all of his friends come in and said, well, Roy wasn't doing it. We were. He kept telling us not to. And I'm like, oh, God, just once. Throw the rock. Don't blame me. About, pick up the rock and throw it, Roy. And, uh, you know, but he wasn't that kind of a kid. He was a good kid. And one night, um, New Year's Eve, 1974, uh, New Year's night, excuse me, uh, first night of 1974, his friends came over, talked my mom into uh, letting him go with them somewhere. And uh, I wanted to be cool in front of the boys. My mom said, no, it's a holiday. I don't want any of my kids out. And I'm like, oh, come on, Mom, you know, let him go, let him go. I, I won't, because usually if Roy got to go someplace, I'm going to start a fight. Because anything he gets to do, I better get to do something. Because I'm a self-centered, selfish human being. And, you know, it, he should not get anything that I don't get double. And that was just the world that I lived in. But this night, I wanted the boys to think I was cool. I'm like, come on, let him go. And my brother left that night, and uh, he never came home. On his, on his way home, he was hit and killed by a car. And I don't, I'm emotional because, you know, you, ha you have a loss, and it brings up everyone. It's not like I haven't healed through a lot of this, but... Um, the hardest thing was, and why this is pertinent to my story of alcoholism, is that um, when my mother went up there that night and, and they told her that her son was dead and she came back home and I knew what she was going to tell me and I didn't want to hear it. And she's trying to put her arms around me and tell me you won't be with us anymore. And I'm saying, no, no, no. And I was so angry with God that night. I was so mad. I thought, how can you do this? And when I watched the person who in my world was larger than my life, my mother you know, when my parents divorced, my mother was the one that was always there. My father was never home. He was a daily chronic drinker. It was my mother that showed up day in and day out. Now, she wasn't a perfect mother. I mean, we ended up drinking together, fighting together, and doing all kinds of crazy sick shit together. But she was my champion. She was my hero. She 
did the best she could with what she had at the time, and I know that today. I absolutely know that today. And we went a little crazy that night because one of ours was gone. and We didn't have a God to deal with it, and we didn't know how to handle that loss. So the partying increased, and it got a little crazier. And a year later on Easter Sunday when the phone call came in and I took the call and some man was upset and he's crying on the phone and his voice is somewhat familiar but I'm not sure who it is. And I give the phone to my mom and she starts crying and she's going, oh no, oh God, not Roy. And we've already lost one Roy, so it's got to be about my dad. And she gets off the phone to tell me that um, my father got drunk and shot himself in the head. I was done. You couldn't tell me that there was a God that was loving. You could tell me there was a God all right, but he was an evil bastard, and I didn't want nothing to do with it. And it was from that point on that all I wanted was to feel good. I was your lampshade drinker. I was the girl that came swinging into the party. You know, there's not going to be any tears going on here. We're going to be laughing. We're going to be joking, and I'm going to be the most outlandish one in the room. And the more I drank and the more my self-esteem went down and the worse I behaved, the worse I behaved. And the worse I felt about me, the worse I behaved and the more I drank. And that's how I spent my teenage years. They kicked me out of school at 16, 15. They kicked me out of school at life for 15. My mother began having a penchant for young men. I would say, man, excuse me, my, my mother was almost a child molester. Her boyfriends were like 17, 16. <laughs> In fact, when we moved to Phoenix, Christopher was just old enough that we didn't have to get parental permission to take him out of state. So <laughs> we were glad about that one. And, uh, uh, and there had been a family fight at the house, and my mother had, had thrown out this young boyfriend who I went to high school with. And, and uh, so, you know, like the drunken, crazy-ass people we were, we went over the house, and I'm mad, and I beat up everybody in the house, because that's what I know. I know anger. I know violence. I know alcohol. I know that behavior. And I went in there. And all five foot two of me, I'm beating the shit out of everybody in this house. And so the next day I go to school, and he comes up to the school, and he's a little mad. And uh, uh, so a, a woman, in the, I'm in the girls' room, and the, one of the girls in there puts a knife in my hand. And I said, what am I going to do with this? She said, I ain't letting you out of here if you don't at least open it, because when that bell rings and everybody goes to class, you're going to be alone out there with Chris. And he said, he's going to kill you, and he's not kidding. I've known him my whole life. He's not kidding. And sure enough, I opened up that bathroom door, and he said, Bitch, you're dead. And I pulled out that knife, and he laughed at it and hit it with his hand. And the next thing you know, I'm driving that into this man five times. And to think that I could do that to another human day today, another human being today, that appalls me. But the good news is, two weeks later, my mom was taking his stitches out, and we were a happy family again. <laughs> he actually moved out to Phoenix with us. Well, it was time to go. <laughs> we had gotten that mess out of the way. No need for you and I to fight anymore. Whole new respect for one another. The respect was he stood there and never flinched. I'm like, oh, my God. Get me out of this one. Um. But that was alcoholism. That was alcoholism in my family, and that was alcoholism in my life. And I stand here and I tell these stories, and we laugh, and it is, I mean, it is funny today. But, I mean, then, I mean, today, that's insane. That's stuff you watch on TV. That's the Sunday movie that, you, you know, that's, hey, let's go watch that movie where that crazy bitch stabs that guy at school. And, you know, and I'm thinking, and when I look back, see, that was my life. That was my life. 
And there was nothing abnormal about that. Do you know what I thought was abnormal? If you didn't drink or take drugs, there was something seriously wrong with you, and I was willing to help you. I helped a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people. Um, um, I, I help people today a little differently. <laughs> Here, you know. Sometimes I'm an example of what to do, and some days I'm an example of what not to do. Either way, I'm helping people. But, um, you know, so we, so we move out to, uh, and, and, and I'm with, you know, I get with Sharon, and, and uh, all of us move out to Phoenix. And, I, you know, you heard Carrie earlier, for those of you that heard her, she had her little Pinto when she, you know, went to L.A. And, and it, what Pintos, were they a lesbian muscle car in the 70s and 80s? <laughs> so, I mean, that's what we came to Phoenix in was our little Pinto. Like, yeah, we got our Pinto. And uh, so we, we pull into Phoenix, Arizona, and, and, and this should have been a hint that there might be an issue with me, is that, you know, we park the U-Haul. We don't get a place to live or a job or anything like that. We find our bar, you know. And, and men have, I mean, if I were a gay man, it would have been horrible because it would have taken me weeks to get so many more bars than we do, you know. I think you guys make more money, and that really sucks, but I'm not bitter. So... Um, <laughs> I've moved on from that. So, you know, I've got these three women's bars, and I've got to figure out which one's going to be home. And then I've got to go find a place to put my clothes. Well, <laughs> well, I'm not at home. So, you know, that's what we did. We found our bar. And that's where we began to hang out, and that's what we began to do. And, you know, and that relationship ended. And, and I, I, why? I just I could never figure out why. Maybe it's because sometimes we'd be driving down the street and having an argument, and she'd say something like, you're just dead. And I'd kick the steering wheel and say, well, now we both are. And the car's flying off the road. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe that's why my relationships didn't work. I don't know. Uh, but I could, certainly couldn't figure it out. I knew I had driving problems, women problems. I had work problems. I had mother problems. I had all kinds of problems, but I never had drinking problems. So um, uh, uh, you come into the rooms in a VA and they talk about alcoholics being really intelligent. I heard that when I first got here. They have very high IQs. And I bought into it because I wanted to believe that was true. And then I kept listening to your stories. And I'm like, what's not matching up here? <laughs> So, because I know my best thinking, how I'm, you know how I moved to Arizona? You know how the decision for me was made to move to Arizona? I'm living in Michigan where it's very cold. I'm at a Pinto station, station wagon, and I'm coming back from Flint to Whitmore Lake. We've got the heater up on high. I'm as drunk as I can possibly get, and I'm still cold, so there's a problem. And I said, hey, you know what? I hear it's warm in Arizona. Two and a half months later, we're living there. Yeah? Because it was warm. Let's, you know, let's not put on more clothes or anything like that, so let's just move to another state. <laughs> Let's not get a different car than a Pinto. Let's just, you know, move to another state. Let's get a different state. And, and, uh, and I always used to, you know, and it wasn't, there was no conscious thought to this. This is all retrospect. I didn't know I was running away from me. I didn't know I was running away from the disease. I didn't know that I was bringing me with me when I came out here. I was just hoping that there would be someplace better, something different, and it was always going to be out here. And I'm, I'm, please, let there be something different. Let me feel different. And I move out here, and there's nothing different. That relationship ends. I had a, a best friend. Uh, my, my, actually, my, my first love was a, was a boy, and he was such a girl. I loved him. He was. <laughs> and so I lost my virginity to him, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, and I said, "What? Can't you think of anyone else either?" And <laughs> that part of it wasn't working out real well for either one of us. <laughs> Who's gonna take top? Neither one. All right. <laughs> That was kind of cute, wasn't it? Um, so he came out to Phoenix for, for a minute. 
But, strangely enough, he liked San Francisco better. Who knew why? <laughs> he went out there, so after living in Phoenix for a couple of years and things just weren't getting better, I thought, you know what? I know what. I know what will fix all this. I'm going to go live with Brian in San Francisco because I won't drink in Northern California. <laughs> There's that intelligent thinking again and that wonderful decision-making. So, you know... So I used to get drunk and call Brian up, and I'm moving out there, I'm whatever. I don't know what I'd say to him. I, I used to call this friend of mine in Michigan after I moved to Phoenix, and you know what I learned? We didn't have cell phones. You know, I'm looking around. There's some people my age isn't there. I'm not the only old person here, right? So um, I would call her in the middle of the night drunk. I spent hundreds of dollars on a phone bill, and you know what I found out? She used to hear it was me, knew I was drunk, set the phone down, went back to bed. I talked to myself for hours, <laughs> hours, and paid for it. <laughs> Because we're so intelligent and our IQ is higher than everybody else's. And, and, you know. So I move out to Northern California. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm living with Brian. And you know, it's fun. You know, he's always, he was always such a fun guy. And uh, I, I get a job out there. And I get this job. And there was this woman there that had something I wanted, and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it, and it was not sobriety, okay? And so uh, she's kind of alluding that she has this problem. And I thought, oh, I help people with problems. I have the problem solver. And uh, she's saying that she has this problem with cocaine. She can't do cocaine anymore. And she goes to this program for it. And because she can't do cocaine anymore, she doesn't drink because... Drinking uh, might lead to this cocaine problem that she has. And I thought, I, it took me nine years to learn how to drink. I understand your problem. Maybe we can do it short enough that time for you, and I can help you somehow with this. So we go on a date, and she takes me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's some sick shit, people. <laughs> you know, I've been here over 21 years, and our first date is not going to be an AA meeting. I still, I've, I did put it in a four-step. I have worked on it. I'm pretty much over that resentment, but so she takes me to this AA meeting, and I'm sitting there in this room, and it's like, um, it's not set up like this. There's about this many people, but it's, you know, elongated, and it's a speaker meeting, and there's some woman up there, and she's bragging about having 25 years of not having a drink. She's talking about being in mental institutions and jails and all this shit, and I thought, sounds to me like you need a drink now. I can help you, too. I mean, halfway through, I'm thinking afterwards, I'm going to take her for a drink because she's making me want one. And, and, uh, and, and you know what? Uh, the, the seed got planted that night in spite of my smart-ass self. The seed got planted. I'd like to apologize for cussing right now. I don't know why. It's not going to change. So um, I like to cuss. I know you're supposed to get up here. I wear a dress. I'm supposed to be a lady. It's not worked out so far. I look good, but I don't act right. So anyway, I digress. Um, she's up there and she's talking, and the, and, and the seed was planted, and the miracle began at that, at that point in time because she began talking about this emptiness inside of her, this hole that she was trying to fill with everything out here. And I began to relate, and I understood. And she was looking this way. She's not looking right at me, but I thought she was because as I began to relate and I began to hear this, and I'm like, somebody put a name to it. That shame and that guilt and everything that I've always felt all these years and that self-loathing that I felt all these years. She's talking about how she tried to get rid of that with alcohol and how it worked in the beginning. And how it changed how she felt about herself and then one day it quit. And I'm like, my God, this woman's talking right to me. 
And I began to understand that that's what's been going on with me. Maybe not necessarily I'm an alcoholic, but that there's this hole inside of me that I need to fill that I can't, this God-sized hole that I'm trying to fill with everything and everyone else. And all I ever wanted, all I ever really wanted was to be loved. All I ever wanted was to feel okay, and all I ever wanted was to feel normal instead of different. You know, growing up, I always felt different. I knew things the other kids didn't know that I know I wasn't supposed to know. I mean, I'm doing things that other kids my age aren't doing. I look at a nine-year-old today, and I see a baby. And when I was that age, I'm smoking cigarettes. I look at a ten-year-old. Their bodies haven't even begun to mature. They're little teeny tiny children. And I'm pouring drugs and alcohol into my body by that age. And it breaks my heart to think that. And I'm sitting there, and I'm getting to understand that godlike feeling. And she started talking about coming to this program and how it saved her life and what it did for her. So I saw this gal a few more times, and... And uh, uh, and next thing you know, I'm going to AA meetings, and I'm identifying as an alcoholic, and I'm 24 years old, and and uh, I stayed for four and a half months. Well, what happened is 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 that um, it was just the beginning. I wasn't done. I wasn't ready. I was far too young. I looked far too good, and <laughs> I had a smoking body, and there's just no way that I could be, you know. Um, ready for this yet. <laughs> so, uh, I'm, you know, I'm still living with Brian, and, and his, uh, his partner had a sister, and she kept coming down, and I thought she was coming down to visit him, and they're like, oh, no, she's coming to see you, and I'm like, no, no, she's coming to, and no, she was coming to see me, and I went and drank for three and a half more years, and, because to be with her, believe me, trust me, I had to drink, and we're not going to go into $5 Connie tonight, but, <laughs> oh, my God, that girl was nearly the death of me, and it was only, not because of her, because two sick people were in a relationship, so Brian and I went off and got married at some point in time, so he, him and I are man and wife, they're brother and sister, I'm with her, he's with him, and I mean, my God, I think this is fucking normal. <laughs> There's nothing going on here. You know, one of them's a pothead, one's a crackhead, I'm an alcoholic, and the other one's just sick. So uh, she's doing all of our stuff and not paying for any of it. I got over that resentment, too. So, you know, um, I end up coming back home, practically walking back to Phoenix. I drank a couple of more years, and, you know, nothing dramatic really happened. But what happened is, is I was dying on the inside. And a friend of mine that I had drank with for many years, and she was one of the gals that was that uh, Sharon had lived with. She came home from Vegas, and when she arrived, she was sober. And I was so uh, pissed. I was not excited for her, because I thought, oh my God, you know, she's coming back to town. My drinking buddy's coming back to town, and, and I'm in the relationship with me and Connie, and, and so, uh, you know, uh, I, I won't have to have, you know, I could, I'll have this excuse, you know. And she shows up, and she's sober, and she's scared to death, and, and she's, you know, what am I going to do? I'm back in my old playground with all my old playmates, and nothing's, you know, changed around here. And I tell her, you know what, you can stay at my house. I don't bring the bar home anymore. I still drink, but I do, you know, most of my drinking out, outside of the house, and, and it's a lot less crazy than our other friend, you know. So she comes and she stays at my house, and I don't recognize her. She's sober. She's cleaned up. She's, you know, like she used to say, I'll be over on Tuesday. You didn't know what week or what month. <laughs> I'll be there at 6 a.m., p.m. And, uh, you know, my lower companionship is sober, and now I'm lower companionship, and, and I didn't recognize this woman, and, you know, uh, one day I just, you know, like I say, no dramatic thing. My, my moment of clarity is I'm over at my mother's house, and my last drink, this is an embarrassment, my last drink was a wine cooler. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> and uh, 
what happened that night was the strangest thing. I don't know if I drank one or two, but obviously you don't feel a buzz on wine coolers unless you drink a hundred. And uh, but what happened is, it's usually just a tiny amount of alcohol, and in the, in the in that craving starts. It doesn't take much for that craving to start, and the craving didn't set in. And I realized that, you know, I'm either going to live or I'm going to die. And I don't want to die like this. And I can't live like this anymore. And I told Cindy, take me to a meeting. And she did, and that was November 19, 1990, and I haven't found it necessary to take a drug or a drink since. Um, it's been an incredible journey over those years. It hasn't been always easy. Right after I got sober, uh, Brian had been HIV positive, the man I went and lived with in California, and he began having uh, symptoms, and he began with a series of pneumocystis. I don't have to tell you what that is. And he was getting really sick. And I was um, going out to California to spend time with him. And then um, he was getting ready to move out to Phoenix with me so that, you know, I could take care of him because legally we were married and I was able to put him on my insurance, you know. Um, and, uh, and he called me and he said, I can't, I can't, Lori, I'm, I'm in the hospital again. And I'm, in, I'm like, no, it's just pneumocystis. We'll get you under control and we'll get you out of here. He said, no, no, honey. He says, they found a mass in my intestines and we don't know what it is. And uh, I was on an airplane that night and at his bedside and I'm three and a half months sober that next, by 10 o'clock that night. Noon I left work. By 10 o'clock that night and he just put his arms up to me. And I'd only been around the rooms a short time but I was there long enough to know that I couldn't tell him it was going to be all right because I didn't know. But what I could do is tell him I love you and I'm here and I'm not leaving until we know what this is. And I spent the next three months taking care of my friend while he died of AIDS. I was seven months sober when he laid on our couch and I held his hand. And God blessed me with the opportunity to let that man know that one human being loved him unconditionally no matter what. And I didn't have to take a drink. And I didn't have to take a drug. And I didn't even want to. Because it would have been a dishonor to his memory to had to have done something to take that away. And we were able to tell each other how much we loved each other, what our friendship meant to each other, what everything we, you ever want to be able to have the opportunity to say to another human being, I loved him. It had nothing to do with sex, sexuality, any of that. He was a human being I'd known since I was 12 years old that I loved. And God said, yes, he's got to go through this and you get the honor of being there with him. And here I stand, 21 years later, with the same honor, Monday night. And you know why I was able to do this and know that it's an honor and know that there's a God? Because of AA. Because I came here and I asked you guys, how do I behave different? How do I stop being a greedy pig? How do I quit behaving this way? How do I stop lying and cheating on everybody? So while you take these steps off the wall and you, first of all, you admit you're an alcoholic and that your life is unmanageable. That was hard. I could admit I was an alcoholic, but I couldn't see unmanageability. How? I never lost anything. How do you lose anything if you never gained anything? Start drinking at eight. Tell me how many cars, wives, and kids you've got by the time you're 28. <laughs> so I had to learn that unmanageability went on in here. Step two. You're crazy, bitch. You need to get sane. Your thinking ain't going to get you there. You need a power greater than you. And that's all I could do at that time was a part of great me. It couldn't be God. Because I couldn't get around that. But yeah, there's something out there. Step three. 
Now turn your will and your life over to it. But I didn't have any other thing to do, did I? So I did, and it was a start. And my first time through the steps, it was just a start. And I said, okay, I'll try this. I'll try it just a little bit. My first four step, I did the very best I could. I didn't get to page 69, but I did all the rest of it, boy. <laughs> well, I mean, come on, every relationship? I'm gonna, I've got relationships, God, you take alcohol and drugs. It would take me nine years in this program to hit bottom on that, and I did. And when I hit bottom on that, I damn near died because it wasn't about drinking anymore. It was about my heart. It was about dying. It was about, about that gut level. Am I going to give it all up? Am I going to become totally willing to give myself over to this entity that I've never trusted or believed in? And I'll tell you what. I am so grateful today that I chose life and that I chose God because I have this incredible, amazing God today. So I did that fifth step, and I've done them more than once. And I got honest with another human being with God. And this is what I've done, and this is who I've hurt. And when I made that list, it wasn't difficult to make that list. I knew who needed to be on that list. And when I made those amends, it wasn't all that difficult either because I no longer wanted to be the person that hurt people. And so I made amends to as many of them as I could. And in step uh, six, I didn't get it at first. The first time they gave me my four-step, go home, sit for an hour, look at this, and then hit your knees and do the seven-step prayer. I'm like, okay. Is it an hour yet? I didn't really get it, but I did it. And I hit my knees and I prayed to this God and asked him to relieve me of those character defects because I knew what they were. First of all, I'm no liar, a cheat, and a thief. My God, you know, right away. We, we know that I'm that. And, uh, and slowly they began to go away. And then, you know, make that eight-step lift, go to those people, and then ten. Kind of just clean it up. Pay attention. If it ain't feeling right in here, it ain't right. You know? And uh, Stepan, I used to say, sought through prayer to improve my conscious contact with God. I didn't know what meditation was. I couldn't sit quiet. Sitting quiet meant being alone with me. I never liked me. I was not a solitary drinker. I was a bar drinker because I didn't like me. And if I was alone drinking, I'm on the phone talking to myself. <laughs> because nobody's on the other end. <laughs> Step 12. Get up off your ass, quit thinking about you for two seconds and help somebody else. That was not easy for me. I was all I thought about. I was all I cared about, even though I couldn't stand me. I couldn't imagine not thinking about just me. It doesn't matter that in, whether it's an inverted ego. I walked into the room with a big, you know, they used to say, the, the, the gay men are the ones that say, larger than life. Because I walked in and, you know, just all as, you know, flamboyant as the next. Some of them queens were a little jealous, I know. Because <laughs> mine were real. <laughs> but that's all right, we worked through it. But they did. I'm grateful to the gay men in the room because I, being molested and being abused the way I was when I first was out, I, I, I thought I was butch and I really wasn't. <laughs> but I dressed like that because it was safe. And being a girl in my family was a very dangerous thing, and so I never wanted to be a girl. And gay men were the first time that I could have masculine energy and, and men around me that, that didn't want anything from me, that never wanted to harm me, that just wanted to love me. And you taught me how to walk, talk, and, you know, hold my wrist. <laughs> that was really more important than the other shit that I just talked about. Because now I know. This, 
We went and spoke at this conference, and this man says, I'm putting, this gay guy goes, I'm putting together this book. He said, sign language for gay men. And I says, oh, yeah. I goes, well, do you know what this is? He says, no. It's a spiral staircase. <laughs> he goes, you're good. <laughs> I said, honey, I was raised by the gay boys. Um, but they were, and when I came into the rooms of AA, it was the same thing. Very, very grateful. Very grateful that they loved me enough that I could become who, the woman that I am today. Uh, today, Carrie and I have this fantastic life. My mother, whom I fought, drank, and whatever else with, uh, she watched her sister die of emphysema. And so she quit smoking. And she realized if she's not going to smoke, she can't drink because they, for our family, they go hand in hand. And uh, so she kind of stopped drinking. Now, my mother doesn't do any kind of a program because, you know, obviously she's not an alcoholic or have any ism going on. But uh, that's okay, you know, because that's her business today. But I've been able to heal that relationship, that tumultuous relationship that I've had with her. And about 10 years ago, I don't know, I think a girlfriend said to me something like, you want somebody to cook and clean, go live with your mother? I didn't know she was being sarcastic. It sounded like a good idea. <laughs> so I bought a house with my mom. And in doing this, um, uh, wow, you know, I, you know you're, I, what am I, 50 now? And I've been living and so at the, my late 30s, and I'm, I'm living with my mother. I'm like, oh, Jesus. She's fun and she cooks really good, but oh my God. Uh, but I'm so grateful today because my mother's having health problems today. She has um, arterial sclerosis and it's affecting her legs. And so in the last year and a half, we've been in the hospital at least six times where they clean her, they clean her veins out, but they keep filling back up. And, uh, and, I, and she's not getting out of this one alive, you know? And I don't know when, how, or whatever. I know she's in a lot of pain a lot of days and that once again, God has gifted me. I'm not drinking. I don't want to drink over it. I'm sober. I can be there for my mom. I've been able to make all the amends. She's been able to make all the amends. The three of us live together. We have a blast. We have this great life. God gave me a partner that when I said, you know what, my mom needs a new car, I'm just going to take hers and drive that back and forth to work. And she says, yeah, let's buy her a new car. My mother could never afford to go out and just buy a new car. We have a beautiful home today that my mother says she sometimes walks through it and says, she says, I'm just so grateful. She goes, I never thought that I would live in, any, live in anything this nice. So I, we got our housekeeper for every other week, and she goes, I feel like somebody's doing my work. I'm not sure I'm fond of that. <laughs> I said, so clean. Uh, yeah. Clean in between. I don't care. And uh, uh, I can't begin to tell you the gifts that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me. You know what I find every time I work the steps? The people around me, their behavior gets better. <laughs> they change. <laughs> They're nicer to me. I thought, wow, when people start getting mean to me, I should just go work the steps and change them. I'll work them at you. I'll get you better in a whole new way. Because, you know, I got that high IQ of the alcoholic. Um, I love this program. I love my life. I love God. I go to church on Sunday. I have a home group. I have a sponsor. I have sponsees. I have people in my life that love me and accept me for just who I am. I'm so honored that you've invited me here to share this with you. I didn't know what was going to come out tonight, but you know what? I was so glad that I had this place to go to, especially after my Monday night. So thank you all. Thank you.